Hi everyone, welcome to the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. Today, the theme of this episode is from the perspectives of children, and James will be speaking about two A24 films, Sean Baker's extremely touching The Florida Project, and the film reflecting on who your parents were when it's too late, After Sun. Minor spoilers will be shared for both films. And now, here's your host, James Willey. Hey Haley, thank you for that intro, and welcome everyone to the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. My name is James, and hope you all are doing well. It's a dreary Baltimore morning today, or I guess I should say afternoon, and uh, yeah, it's the perfect movie-watching kind of weather. For some reason, it's very foggy. I don't really associate the fog with winter, which is kind of strange now that I think about it. I do want to share a few things before we get into the bulk of the podcast. The end of the strike has been very controversial in Hollywood for a lot of reasons. Um, so officially, as of a couple of days ago, I don't even know the day at this point. I think it was December 5th, uh, there was the final vote, or the end of the final vote, to see what was happening with the sag after strike. I believe 70% or so of people said, you know, let's end it, it's over, but only about 30% of people turned in their ballots. There's been a big issue, I think, since the strike has actually ended, about whether or not there's been enough protections and provisions for AI in the uh, deal of the strike. I think specific language surrounding the consent of when someone kind of allows their image or their likeness to be used for AI, and same thing when someone has passed away. And uh, I believe some of the language right now now says that if you have an estate right now, essentially they can determine whether or not you're placed into a movie after your death through the use of AI, and a lot of people do not like that for very understandable reasons. And uh, yeah, I I was surprised that didn't lead to the strike going for longer than it did. I'm sure it's going to come up when the, uh, the steel that they have now currently expires in 2026. I also want to note about this weekend, I just watched The Boy and the Heron. It's a fantastic film, somehow not Miyazaki's last. I really question that with him being well into his 80s. I just want to name it's a really beautiful film. If you hear this podcast and you haven't still haven't seen it, you know, go watch it. I've seen the dub, I've seen the sub. Both are fantastic iterations of the film. Both have phenomenal voice casts. And uh, it's just a really beautiful film about what does it mean to leave something behind for the next generation or the next person after you. And there's a lot of ways to interpret that film. And uh, I actually think that really fades in really beautifully to the theme of the podcast today. The reason I picked the theme from the perspectives of children is I think there's so many films that are just really poorly written that don't portray children in a very mature way. And sure, there's plenty of films where children are in a way where they're just young adults or small adults. I think that's completely inaccurate. But I think that children have this unique innocence and this unique understanding of the world as voyeurs who don't have the emotional language kind of describe what's going on inside their head, but they can pick up on all the emotions that everyone else around them is kind of casting out into the world. And I, I think it's a very unique viewpoint for an adult film to like have it be from, from the perspective of children. I think when it's done really well, it's done really, really well. When I, when I thought about this topic, there's quite a few films that circulate in my mind, many that um, kind of were on the chopping block. I wanted to do some films that people had spoken about, some that people maybe had not thought about in this way, but they truly do fit in this category. At the end of the day, I kept gravitating towards After Sun and The Florida Project. They're both accidentally A24 films. That was not that was not intentional when I decided to pick the topic for the podcast. I think they're two really incredible films, films that, you know, I highly anticipated. They blew past my expectations. They uh, are just emotionally devastating, and uh, both their filmmakers, whether we're talking about Charlotte Wells or Sean Baker, are just incredible people. I mean, Charlotte Wells has done mostly short films, and then After Summer was her debut, but Sean Baker has, you know, a slightly more established catalog filmography, And uh, but they're both fantastic filmmakers, I want to say. I'm just going to name that. So for now, let's start with The Florida Project, and here's a brief synopsis if you still somehow haven't seen the film. The Florida Project's tagline is Welcome to a Magical Kingdom, 
And the synopsis is, the story of a precocious six-year-old and her ragtag group of friends whose summer break is filled with childhood wonder, possibility, and sense of adventure while the adults around them struggle with hard times. I feel like that's so representative and so beautifully captures what the film is. If you're not familiar with Sean Baker's other work, uh, you know, Tangerine, Red Rocket, uh, Starlet, Prince of Broadway, Take Out, they're all really fantastic films. He is somebody who approaches a lot of people that you normally wouldn't see in a film and represents them in a very authentic and humanistic way. I think his way of doing this is so remarkable when so many other filmmakers would accidentally do something that's offensive or do something that's harmful. Sean Baker is just so intentional with his filmmaking, and there's no way not to see that when you watch any of his films. But yeah, I mean, this is... The Florida Project is such a unique film. I think when most people think about Disney World and Florida, they think about the, you know, the opulence of going to the actual park. They think of Magic Kingdom. They think about Orlando. They think about, you know, the excess, the, uh, the pure joy that is brought through, you know, having several thousand dollars to buy uh, an amusement park ticket. And that's absolutely not the case. And I think especially since the film has come out, there's been a lot more conversations about who who does and who doesn't have access to Disney World. These folks who live just six miles from Disney World at the Magic Castle, I believe is the name of the hotel, they are a lot of folks who are, are frankly poor. They do not have a lot of resources. They do not have a lot of income. And uh, they're struggling to get by. It's a reality that I think is a little bit more clear for some of the children than others. I think mostly that largely they're very unaware, but parents are caretakers. Leads to a lot of their parents maybe appearing to be a lot more immature than you expect them to be. A lot of them not acting like parents that you expect to see in a film. Most of their parents or most of their caretakers are single parents or single caretakers and they're working all the time and there's no time to be a parent, yet this is the situation that they're in. I want to name this too. The real magic castle that this film takes place in, the hotel, uh, it closed down several years ago, I think around the time of COVID. Uh, It was just not a financially viable place. You know, it's a hotel for mostly low-income folks who live there a long time. Um, Lots of folks who lived at that hotel actually appeared in the film. Um, They're all captured in really respectable ways. I I think, again, Sean Baker is just so intentional with all of his filmmaking and how he approaches everyone. And uses a lot of non-actors, I want to say that. Um, Non-actors are his specialty. And that's no different when talking about the supporting roles in the film. There's this weird effect with Sean Baker's films, and specifically The Florida Project, and this is not on him. I think this has to do with people getting access to films and absorbing films the way that they do. People were obsessed, especially if you're in the A24 film group on Facebook, with taking pictures at the Magic Castle when it was there, taking pictures of the folks who were there uh, who were in the film. And I'm sure those folks appreciate that, and I don't really have an issue with that. There's kind of this gazy attitude that comes with being poor by, you know, going to this hotel where people live and taking a picture and being like, look, this isn't a movie. And I think it's one, it's a different thing when people are passing by and taking this picture. But for some people, they are... It reminds me of the dynamic that comes with voluntourism or whenever folks go to a place where people are just less socioeconomically well off and kind of gaze upon it. They ref- they take pictures of everything. They're like, oh, look how cool this is. And this is people's real reality. And there's not really a serious kind of uh, look at you know, th- This is how people are living. Uh, I also want to name the, the title of the film, The Florida Project. A lot of people don't know this. This was the name of Disney World when it was in the works, where uh, Walt was buying up a bunch of land, didn't want the Florida government to know what was going on. And uh, it was called Project X and also The Florida Project. And uh, that's where the title of the film is, which kind of hints at a lot that happens in the film, especially the last five minutes or so, which I, uh, I'll i keep vague for the sake of the podcast. We immediately open with these children as they're frolicking and hanging about and, you know, essentially having 
a good summer like most kids sh- or that all kids should be doing. And, um, you know, immediately they become a little bit more rude, a little more hostile to people around them. They do become a bit unlikable. And I do want to say this. I think the characters in this film at points are very, very unlikable. I think they're unlikable because one, at least the children, they're not being properly supervised. They're not being properly taught. You know, this is how you show up. And two, all of the parents don't have the emotional bandwidth to reflect on themselves and show up in a more mature way or to be parents or whatnot. I still think despite all of that and despite how unlikable some of these things that these characters do, because there's some really despicable stuff, especially something that the kids do halfway through the film, I felt so badly for them. I think I saw their humanity above everything else, and that made me feel for them so much, especially as we get closer to the end of the film. I think that's why it's such a difficult watch for people. I think it's one that pulls at people's heartstrings. I think it's a film that made people reevaluate their relationships with poor folks, right? You say hello to poor folks when they ask for money. Do you uh, talk to them? Even if you don't have any money to give, sometimes they have anyone to even look at them. Like People do do not look at uh, folks who are struggling like they're people. And uh, I think this film does a really good job of of making these people people uh, and, and putting it out for a wider audience. I just always wonder why people hate them. I think it's one of the more frustrating talks and conversations that I have, whether we're talking about Mooney or Haley, just because, you know, they both do unlikable things, like I said, and I think they're both shown in such humanistic ways. Um, People not liking them is very frustrating to me. I think it's a great litmus test to see how emotionally mature a person is or how humanistic they are, how willing they are to engage with their neighbors by watching this film. There is a lot of alone time for these kids in this film, and it I kind of reflected on this, and, and I think everyone has a kind of reaction to this, because most of these kids are alone for most of the film. Like, Haley and Mooney, while Haley is clearly Mooney's mom, I don't think they have a ton of scenes together, really. Like, I think it's mostly Mooney kind of on her own. And um, I think of, one, how unnormalized it is for kids to kind of frolic about and socialize and just kind of be on their own, especially now in, in modern society in 2023. And granted, this film came out six years ago. I don't know how many people would do this and let their kids kind of roam around, especially because these kids are walking around the highway. They're walking around these really busy roads. And it's a very busy area. And there's even a point in the film where I'll just name the kids are in very extreme danger. And uh, Willem Dafoe's character, who, by the way, is one of my favorite Willem Dafoe roles, he protects them and he saves them. And it's maybe a dozen or so kids and, and not a single other parent is there supervising or anything. And I wonder what the parents thought about that time. Like, it was very, very normalized for these kids to just hang about. I talked about Willem Dafoe. I mean, I, I believe he was one of the only people nominated for this film uh, when it came to the Oscar season, which was just tragic. I, I thought this film was going to be a much bigger splash when it came to the uh, awards. Uh, and just to clarify, yeah, he is the only nomination for the film. I, I think he shows a maturity. He shows a firmness. Like, he is a guiding compass for Mooney's character and a lot of the other kids. And I think he's just a wonderful person who's also very flawed like you can see some of those flaws coming through the cracks as you watch him throughout the film i feel like i picked up on more aspects of his personhood that i didn't pick up on before which might say a lot about me i believe that bria venate and brooklyn kimberly prince who played Haley and mooney so Haley's the mother and mooney's the daughter um they were non-actors by the time that they started this film i believe now they're both established bria venate has not been in many things brooklyn kimberly price she's, she's 
she's gotten consistent work, I'll say. Like, she she was recently a cocaine bear. But all their performances are really wonderful. Like I said, Willem Dafoe is so firm in his role. I think Bria Venate, she conveys this, like, immaturity, this lack of seriousness. Yet she's able to take a step back and look at Mooney and be like, this is my daughter and I care for her. And I'm going to do the best that I can, even if the best that I can isn't conventional for everyone else. And I think that's really beautiful. That's the humanity of it all. That's the humanity of this film. When it comes to Brooklyn Kimberly Prince's character, I think she is someone who's very headstrong, someone who's very stubborn. And it's only just because she doesn't know any better. Like, she's truly a, a six-year-old girl who's trying to find her way in the world. And she knows that circumstances aren't fantastic, but she has a mom that's trying her best. And she's having a fun time. And she wants to hang out with her friends. And I don't really blame that. I do blame them when uh, very unfortunate things happen all throughout this film that are very, very dangerous that you should never let your children do. And uh, I'll leave it at that. All really wonderful performances that that lend to these really humanistic characters. There's a pool scene in the film. I just want to name, this is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, this interaction. I, I don't want to say too much about it until you see the film. I just had to note that. Um, I, I did really wonder this as I was watching the film. Although it becomes clear as we get near the end, I really wondered, what does Haley do for a job? Um, we see her selling perfume outside of a hotel, kind of at various points throughout the film, to various success. And I kind of wondered what was happening there and what really was her source of income. I know it's hinted at earlier in the film, considering, you know, there's moments where she's able to get free food and free resources and things like that. But I wasn't sure if she was able to, like, manage all of her rent because of that. I, I felt like that was a little... Not that that's, like, a plot hole or anything. I was just very curious about that as I thought more and more about the film. Another observation I want to make is there's a really dramatic incident that happens later in the film. The one that I imply that where you should really be watching your kids... And uh, these kids all partake in an incident, and they they hide it mostly well. And the the adults it causes such a, a hubbub that the the adults want to watch what's happening going on. I think that's so interesting that um, when you are removed from a level of violence or a level of tragedy, you can watch something like that and have no issues with anyone else absorbing it. You have no issues about absorbing it yourself or becoming a voyeur. But the second that there's any kind of personal responsibility, it's no longer funny. And I, I found that to be really tragic, especially considering the incident and what happened. And again, I apologize for vagueness, and I, I just want you to watch the movie. That's why things are vague here. And uh, I did want to make this note about speaking to children as peers rather than children. There is some benefit to hearing adults speak to children like adults, you know, treating them like they're emotionally mature, treating them like they're able to understand everything going on, and then, you know, taking a step back and explaining things when there's confusion or things that are going wrong. That's not what's happening in this film. Uh, there's a lot of immaturity that kind of gets brought on and keeps spinning on. And I don't feel like that cycle stops and it becomes really, really hard when our characters are pushed to a really emotional space. And while I think they're capable of feeling all those emotions that they feel, there sometimes isn't the word to describe all those feelings that they feel, and I think that's ultimately the tragedy of the Florida Project. Talking about speaking to children as peers rather than children, I feel like that's a really common thing that happens in the After Sun, so we might as well transition to that film. And so here's the tagline synopsis for After Sun. The tagline is Memory Burns, which is fascinating. I had no idea that's what it was. And the synopsis is Sophie reflects on a shared joy and private melancholy of a holiday she took with her father 20 years earlier. Memory is real and imagine fill the gaps between many DV footage as she tries to reconcile the father she knew with the man she didn't. What is the point where we realize as children that our adults are people, right? I think a lot of times people think of 
adults as or, or parents as caregivers or disciplinarians or somewhere in between but when do we realize that they have ambitions and goals and dreams and fears and joy and all these feelings that we're capable of but we're you know they're so focused on taking care of us that there isn't any space to name what those feelings are for them or for us to recognize those feelings in them. So this was also a rewatch for me. And I, and I want to say this. It's been a long time since I've watched After Sun. I watched it originally when it came out. And this is one of the most haunting vacations I've ever seen. One of the most disturbing vacations. The whole time I was watching the film, it feels like I'm watching Paul Meskel's ghost kind of navigate the screen. And it was just deeply upsetting from the beginning. And maybe that's my context of watching the film and kind of sitting with it the way that I did. Um, because I think there's something that happens when you watch the last 10 minutes of this film and come back and revisit it. Like the feelings associated with this film are so much more heavy. I understood, like I knew the synopsis going into the film. I don't think I understood the weight or the abstractness of the way that the story is told. Like it, it's not really clear we're watching a 31 year old watching a home movie of her dad after he's passed away. I mean, it, it is, you can kind of pick up on that as you watch her throughout the film, but it, it is done in a much more abstract way than you would assume kind of reading the synopsis. There are so many moments moments of Paul Meskel drenched in darkness that were just haunting to me. Like, I, he he feels like a specter, like someone who doesn't even exist anymore. And I think it captures this distance that his daughter feels towards him. And, you know, I think she's trying to grapple with this idea of who her father was, because if this is as based off of Charlotte Wells' life as the film appears, um, she would often go on vacations with her father like this, and he passed away mysteriously around the time she was 16. There is not much clarity on kind of what the details of that were when you read Wikipedia. Or I wasn't going to do too much of a deep dive on it because I felt like I was almost digging into something so personal, although this film is really based off of her life. You know, how do you grapple with when you are not even 18 years old that your parent has passed away and you are reaching an age of consciousness where you're starting to understand that they're they're people that they're adults that something is going on that they can feel something and to just have that slip from your grasp all of a sudden i think it's a it's a devastating age to lose a parent and i i just felt that all throughout this film home video quality when i first watched this film i, I felt a level of warmness watching the initial home tapes and kind of not knowing where the film was going i felt a lot of more warmness and i think some of that had to do with the you know the the climate the, the vacation atmosphere it being summer it looked like a joyous time there was joy there is joy in the film i'm not denying that but i started paying attention to all the scenes in between where i was clearly seeing a man struggling and he had no idea how to tell his 11 year old daughter because you know what do you say in that situation watching uh sophie coro and paul mescal there's you know paul mescal's 27 sophie coro is 13 years old they feel like a real father and daughter, which is kind of remarkable considering their age difference or the lack of age difference. But it speaks to the maturity that Paul Meskel is able to carry in this role and also the youth. Like, he is a very, very young father, and I think that's captured very well. Yeah, I think Sophie comes to this role with such a curiosity of... I can feel her starting to wonder a bit about her father, but there's a bit of a distancing whenever he shares something really dark. Like, there's a point in the film where she asked him... You know, what did you think you were doing when you were 11? And he immediately breaks down in a way that is just kind of, it's heartbreaking. And he tells her to shut off the camera, and he is clearly going through a moment. And I can imagine for a parent, there's almost this internal debate of, do I show my child what I'm feeling right now, or do I take a step back and, you know, hide this from them and, and share this with them? 
maybe in the future I'd ever share this with them. And Paul Mesco's character all through this film, he makes the choice to share. And one, you know, that that's what makes this film so rich. It makes it so feel so vulnerable. It's what makes the dynamic between these two so beautiful. And it's what makes the film heartbreaking. There's a conversation that's had when I think about this film and when I talk to people about this film. Is this Sophie filling the gaps as she's older about what her father was thinking at the time, kind of understanding that she's about the same age he was when he passed away and wondering, you know, am I just like him? Am I, am I, if I put my feelings on his experience now that I have a child, do I feel very similar to him? Or is this stuff that she's inferred from rewatching the tapes or thinking about who her father was, or is it just all imaginary? Is it her trying to make sense of something that's happened? And there's no other way to grasp it other than to, to name all these emotions and name all these things, because I, I can't think of many men who would be willing to do that and put everything on the line and share all these emotions. It's really extraordinary, this film. Um, I feel something even talking about it right now. And I, I wonder this too about the details of the vacation, because I, I want to go back when I rewatch this again. Um, are there scenes that don't match up between the videotapes and what we're seeing on the film? And is she somehow remembering something more pleasant than was remembered as he worse than this is he better than this you know is the you know i i don't know and that's all very meta contextual and all very analytical and we'll never get an answer about that unless charlotte wells decides to share more insight about after some which i never expect her to do i feel like he's balancing this attempt to figure out what it means to be a parent that he wishes he had and what does it mean to be vulnerable to your child and what is also a cry for help and i think he does all those things and i think sophie is at an age where she just can't comprehend it it's too much for her and i i don't blame her as sad as that is because I also don't blame her for her father's passing or what happened to him. I think that's a hard thing to reckon with once you've gotten that information as an adult that you might feel responsible that you could have done something at a younger age. This will be my final note about the film. I I, I want to be intentionally as vague as I can about this film because After Sun is, is one of the most wonderful films I've ever seen. Same with The Florida Project, but the final sequence of this film, and Under Pressure, is one of the most devastating things I've ever seen. There are so many emotions that come from the the strobing lights and seeing Paul Meskel's face glazed over, completely faded out as we watch him kind of disappear into the darkness to see older Sophie um, kind of interjected in this film in a very weird way. And I just want to leave it at that. Um, I did not know what was happening the first time I watched the film. I'll just name that older Sophie is in the film much more than we realize. It, the dance sequence leads to an even more devastating goodbye to Sophie and the last time he ever sees Sophie. And I know, I think it's a, a moment that a lot of parents potentially recognize is going to happen. There'll be a last moment when they see their child. And sometimes we don't know when that moment is. And I wonder if Paul Meskel's character knew when that moment was. And that... I think that's the heartbreak of After Sun. All right, it's time for the hot take today. I'm very excited for this one. This is one that was given a little bit to us by Scott. And I'll read this verbatim. My hot take is that we shouldn't have big soundtracks made for movies anymore. By this, I mean things like the latest Space Jam having 20 forgettable songs on it. Not only does it make for a bad album, but for a poor film experience as well. And there's reason why most of the best soundtrack experiences were heavily curated to fit the film rather than used for a promotional tool. Soundtracks in general aren't, of course, aren't bad, nor original songs. Some of my favorite songs are film originals, but just don't make a soundtrack 20 songs long or over half originals unless you dedicated musical, please. You're doing everyone a favor. And let, let me say this. I genuinely agree with this to some extent. I think there have been some really amazing film soundtracks that have been made in the past couple of years, though. Uh, Barbie is not an outstanding soundtrack. It's a good soundtrack. 
but it is one that I think is much stronger than some in recent years. I think Black Panther had a fantastic soundtrack, especially because of uh, Kendrick Lamar's curation on there. The second Black Panther soundtrack is also quite strong. Not as strong, but that, but that also speaks to your other point, that those soundtracks were heavily curated for use in the film, uh, which kind of gives it a different feel than something like the Space Jam 2 soundtrack, which I have no idea what songs are on that. I also think at the same time, I don't know how many... I don't know how many movies are actually getting original soundtracks right now. Like I think about things like Trolls, various films that, that come out, children's films, things like that. I don't really th think that many studios are putting that much money into these soundtracks, unless I'm missing something. They're kind of a rarity in the industry, and I think when they're typically there, they I would say they're typically fine, but I also think that's that's to the detriment of a film too, especially if they're shoving a lot of these songs randomly in the film. I feel like for Barbie, even though I don't love the soundtrack, a lot of the music is very, very, very organic. I feel like for Black Panther, uh, all the music is amazing and fits very well in the film. And uh, I don't remember Space Jam 2, but I, I'm also just having trouble coming up with examples for this. Um, I don't, and maybe that speaks to just overall how unmemorable soundtracks for movies have been in recent years. Uh, I also just, you, you mentioned the last bit, don't making soundtracks, don't make soundtracks that are 20 songs or long. Uh, I also agree with that just kind of in general. I think that's too long of an album. And uh, yeah, I, that's all I really have to say about that one. I think I agree generally, and I don't know how many films this really applies to when I think about this. I would agree, though, that I wish there was more intention brought into the movie soundtrack, though, if they if those are going to be a big thing, especially after the Barbie movie. I feel like they might get a bit of a resurgence. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. This was a fun episode to do. Just kidding. It was a tearjerker. It was devastating. Watching both of these films made me feel a pit inside of my body, and uh, that pit has not left. And, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy them if you haven't seen them before watching the podcast or listening. Next week is the last episode of the podcast for the year. I'm ending out on a big one. I'm doing a Christmas episode. The Christmas episode has a theme to it. I hope you all enjoy it, and Haley, take us away. This has been the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast, and we hope you all enjoyed that episode. Next week is the last podcast episode for the year, and it's the Queer Christmas Special, where James will be speaking about the fictional look into Princess Diana's life, Spencer, and Sean Baker's Christmas classic, Tangerine. Thank you all for tuning in, and we hope you join us next time.